Welcome to the Coffee, Critiques, and Cracked Pottery podcast. This podcast is a bi-weekly exploration of topics and tangents running from food to literature and politics to pop culture. I am your host, Ray, a card-carrying citizen of flyover country, where things are never quite as simple as you imagine. So good morning, folks. It is Tuesday, June 4th, just around noon, and it's been a good day so far. I stuck doing a little bit of extra editing I hadn't really planned on on this episode that I'm supposed to drop tomorrow, and I'm hoping that I get it done. But it's been a good day otherwise. Weather's been kind of iffy, but it still hasn't rained, and that's right now a good thing. River still really high where I am, although I have to say that those of us who live here should be pretty happy. We have not had to suffer nearly as much as other parts of the country. We may have some flooding, but it's not like it is south of us, and we have not had tornadoes and all the rest of it going on the way that they have in some folks' neck of the woods. And so that's a good thing. It's a, a nice early June, you know? May was like the first like real spring May I've had in a long time. Which is kind of nice, because it wasn't, I mean, it was rainy. It was really rainy, and that's a thing. But it wasn't like, you know, in the mid-90s by the middle of of May, which is, you know, a good thing. I expect that the rest of the summer will be warmer, and I expect that we might get a longer protracted autumn than we are used to. But that's okay, I guess. Climate change here is going to be what it's going to be. I'm not a farmer, so the horrible rain and the horrible flooding and the tariffs are not going to screw me over right away. It'll be later at the grocery store where I get boned. You too, you'll get boned by it too. So while you're thinking about climate change not existing, think about that. There is something to be said for early summer though and how beautiful it is. And so I'm enjoying it. Flowers are blooming. Trees are all green. Seeing really cool birds and hearing really cool birds. Actually, I had a scarlet tanager in my yard, which is amazing. If you don't know what that bird is, look it up. They're beautiful. That was fun. Pileated woodpecker last week. We get some pretty cool birds here along the Mississippi River Flyway. Lots of eagles. But then we get so many eagles here now that it's sort of like they're like the seagull of the Mississippi River. They're really... <laughs> In the winter, in particular, they just, like, are clowns. They, people talk about what a dignified and special bird they are, and they can be when they're flying, but they're pretty funny in the wintertime, just below the lock and dam here where the water stays open most of the winter, and they stand around like a bunch of clowns, and they fight with each other over fish. They're silly. They do silly things. I think I talked about one episode it was a couple weeks back now. I was driving with my eldest son. We were going someplace in a big old baldy swooped down in front of our car and snatched a dead rabbit right off the highway they are terrible carrion eaters so there is that well not terrible but they're really they really are just they're just sort of seagulls with better press no i shouldn't say that but well they are true but when you live around animals you see sort of the comedic stuff they do and then you know some of their majesty and the romanticism about their nature is diminished somewhat when you live with a bunch of clown eagles and there are plenty of clown eagles here. 
I could talk a lot about all the different things that are going on along the river, up and down both sides, Mississippi, Minnesota side, Wisconsin side, and but I'm not going to. I'm just going to mention one. This weekend starts Fire in the Shire in Alma, Wisconsin, just kind of a run fair. It's put on in conjunction with Castle Rock Museum here in Alma. It's usually a pretty good time and good reason to get out your Rennie gear if you have it and wander around. It's not super big or anything like that, and it, but it's, you know, it's it's a small town and they're trying to do something cool with the museum and draw people in, you know, and if you have something to do and you like medieval and renaissance and era stuff, you should maybe cruise up and take a look at the museum for no, no other reason. Stay in, you know, have a beer at one of the bars or grab a burger at the Red Ram or, you know, there's things to do. I definitely could stop at the bakery and see Pete Burkhart and his lovely wife about some baked goods because they make some great stuff. And that's that. I just feel pretty mellow, pretty chill today as we have our coffee together. I really do. I had... I was angry a little bit ago, but I'm over it now. I had a big bowl of chili for lunch (laughs) because I made chili yesterday. And it's always better the day after and then the day after and then the day after if you can keep it around long enough. So I had a big bowl of chili. I'm no longer working in food service. I'm not going to get into that story, but I'm not. Instead, I'm working on some hustle here in town. I'm working for a couple shops, local shops doing some stuff and you're gonna hear periodically train noises i when they blow their horns we'll stop recording but you can hear train in the background this is one of the delightful things that living along the banks of the mississippi you get to live with while we as a country close our ears eyes and minds to the idea that fossil fuels are bad for us I think on average, on the average day here in the town I live in, we see over 150 trains. So that's a lot, like a lot, in just one day. And it makes it hard to do things like a podcast or have a conversation in your house that doesn't get interrupted by a train. And I understand, you know, you some of you big city folks that live outside of subways and the rest of it, that's, that's just par for the course. But, you know, I live surrounded by trees and in a semi-rural area. It's kind of annoying that I might as well be someplace in Brooklyn, like living under a trestle bridge. It's constant. So that's annoying. Just think about that. Just think about how delightful it is that we can continue to bear our head in the sand about climate change and that the fossil fuel industry isn't already going to go the way the dodo no matter what we do. In the meantime, we'll just suck the planet dry. But in general, I've had a pretty good week. This new, these new hustles are fun. Um, meeting some interesting new people and learning some new skills. love teaching myself new stuff, figuring it out. So that's good. And other than that, there isn't like a whole lot to coffee kvetch about. I mean, I just can't think of anything that's really got me thinking much. I've been doing a lot of reading and I'm preparing to launch another podcast. But this one is with a friend of mine who lives in, well, west of Minneapolis. And it is about Harlots, the TV show on Hulu and about Handmaid's Tale, also on Hulu. Both of which are shows that if you like costume dramas and or dystopia and or women's stories or stories about things that happen to women, have happened to women, I would suggest you check out both titles, actually. You don't have to listen to my podcast, the other one, if you don't want to. It might be interesting to some of you. It's going to look at both the 
textual references that both shows come from, but also the shows. And to talk about them in all kinds of ways. The shows in particular will be focused mostly on storyline and character development, of course, but it'll also have something to do with the way the show's written and presented and, you know, all the things that go with that. The books, on the other hand, will be talking mainly about the themes involved and what we can learn from both texts. I'm hoping to parlay that one into something professional eventually. This one is a little more on the personal side. Not that it's anything I like any less being geeky and living on the Mississippi is any less important to me than, you know, high-minded literature and television. This is just, this is for me. And the other is an attempt to, like, put forth something super professional that embodies, I guess, my goals and thoughts for the future for me in an ever-changing economy. Being a content producer and being creative, that's, I think, where I want to go. So that's what I'm going to be working on. Anyway, so that's kind of what I've been up to in the meantime, and that and struggling with um, Audible and how to do editing, because it drives me crazy, and uh, it's work, 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 work. I won't hold back any longer. I won't keep us back here chitter-chatting about silly stuff when we have a fantastic interview ahead of us with Alyssa. And I hope you enjoy it, because it's definitely nerdy, definitely geeky, definitely learned, and definitely about women comic book heroes and the women who work in the comic book industry and what that's like. And a little bit about media. So hopefully you'll enjoy it. Hey folks, so welcome to the critiques portion of Coffee Critiques and Correct Pottery. My guest today is Alyssa Lipke. So she's from Winona, Minnesota, and her mama. And <laughs> and I've long discussed doing this episode. She is in my back pocket when it comes to all things girl and all things comic book. Most specifically, girl and comic book together. She is a very humble, in her, in my opinion, but definitely a deserved layman expert to the comic book world, both DC and Marvel and several independent imprints and definitely comes at it from the point of view of a female who reads comic books. She's a fucking unicorn and she's a unicorn for lots of reasons. I love her and she's fabulous. That's beside the point. So she's with me today. I have discussed this before. Um, I'm hoping that you guys all enjoy this. It's certainly geeky and nerdy and I'm aware, but it's going to be intelligent geeky and nerdy. So why don't you give us the skinny on your blooming love and interest in comic books? Lifetime reader of comic books, right? Uh, yeah, for the most part, on and off. When I was very little, just picking, when you could still get them in grocery stores. I think I caught the tail end of that and just seeing them. Or from Fleet Farm, you could get a bunch of really old Marvel 90s comic books, like all wrapped up in one package. So none right. of it made any sense to me. I didn't know what I was looking at, but I always wanted them anyways. And I was, my parents always bought them for me. So this was what, in the late 90s? So I caught maybe the tail end of this even being a thing anymore. And I couldn't tell you why they appealed to me. Haven't put a lot of thought into why they appealed to me, but they just did. Then I think one of the Batman movies in the 90s came out. Whichever one had the seal song in it, Touched by a Rose or whatever, that I think is actually kind of what spurred Batman. Batman was my big, like, jumping in point. So Well, that's excellent because, you know, I'm a Batman fan. <laughs> it's my probably the only DC property I'm really hot on. It's, pro it's probably the only good DC property. Property? Well, 
you know, I, I, there are other DC properties that are really good, but they're generally ones that like people are not really familiar with. Demon is really good. And they did some, even back in the day, did some short run things. And there was a late 80s, early 90s reboot of the DC universe, right? And they consolidated storylines and redid some origin stories. And you and I have discussed, I read um, the Wonder Woman reboot Mm -hmm. by George Perez and really loved it. But then I kind of just fell off it because I found Dark Horse Comics (laughs) and Neil Gaiman and then was like, wow, I don't ever have to go back to that. So I just didn't. I pay attention to some stuff in comics, but I'm not like, not like you. So like when I listen to you talk about it, I feel like I've learned a whole lot that I missed by reading them, but then I don't have to read them anymore because there's you. What's the big two in like superhero comics because these characters have existed for so long. There is going to be, there's always going to be a need to reboot whole entire continuities. And that makes superhero comics super inaccessible just to begin with. And I also know relatively little about any of it. I have a very, very, very poor knowledge of that kind of stuff even. So I'm just going to throw that out there. That's my caveat is I'm not, an, I'm not really that expert. So you brought up an interesting point about how the re- constant reboots for the, the big two. So Marvel and DC have a deleterious effect then in terms of new readers coming on board and really absorbing what's going on especially i'm guessing or what you said was for superhero comics when it's been successful it or has it ever been successful for you have there been reboots that throughout your comic book reading history you found to be really very successfully done i just know when they happen and It's it's more just, there are editorial policies that are put in place regarding like continuity reboots. One that I can think of off the top of my head being like the new 52 a few years ago at DC, where there was some editorial decisions that were made there that I completely didn't agree with. But the one nice thing about the way that these reboots have been happening, generally speaking, but not always, always start with issue number ones. And it is possible to pick them up and read the first one. And if you do that, it doesn't make a, a, a real big tangible difference if you've never read anything before. But they all kind of work like that, though. Not all of them, but lately, they, that's how it seems to have worked. So uh, That's cool. So would you suggest then for a novice comic book reader who wants to get into it, let's say... You know, after the MCU success, right, this has been a huge, like, tour de force of movies that have been highly successful. So if you found yourself in that situation, would you recommend to folks to, like, check out Omnibus or whatever? Does that sound like a good idea? Yeah, that's what I would do because they're going to be publishing stuff like that because they know the movies are coming out. They're going to be expensive, but they're going to be the comic books comic books upon which those movies were based so if that's specifically the thing that you wanted to get into if you wanted to read actual infinity war or whatever that'd probably be go that'd be pretty easy to go find like an omnibus here's all of the things you need to know otherwise what you have to do is you have to go online and you have to go track single issues usually stuff like that is across several titles it's a big pain so if that's specifically what you wanted to do 
if, if I want to read Infinity War, that's what I would do. Otherwise, if there's a character that you just really, really, really like from those movies, whether that be like a Captain Marvel or a Black Widow or whatever, go to your comic book store, go online, do whatever, and check what issue number they're on. Because probably a lot of those titles aren't going to be super high issue numbers. And I mean, even if you see like a 20 or a 30, that's a super manageable load. I just want to touch on this issue before we get really into the female created content or female led content. As you stated, or as you so aptly put out, there's, you know, writers aren't necessarily considered creators because these properties belong to companies like DC or Marvel or whoever. They are jealously guarded. But we have writers, so female written comic books. Before we go there, since we lost a bit of the audio, yay. Um, I want to just discuss what the future of comic books and comic book media is in light of the fact that Disney has just basically purchased uh, Marvel for all intents and purposes. Where are we? What are we looking at in terms of like... I think most of us who have been watching the different things, the different properties on Netflix or Hulu that were Marvel properties, and suddenly they're gone because Disney bought them um, and they're in the larger Marvel universe. So now you're only going to be have access to those probably through Disney streaming service or whatever streaming service if, if, if they're um, ever even brought back. Well, yeah, if they're even brought back or if they do launch other other properties like, you know, Hulu is owned by 20th Century Fox. So um, and that's where that's how Disney got access to Marvel. If we what what do you think that's going to look like? What? So one the cancellation of stuff like Jessica Jones and Punisher on Netflix is pretty indicative of, I think, probably what we're going to start to see. Whereas before this big consolidation under Disney, there were all these different ecosystems that were kind of that existed under greater Marvel comic continuity that were kind of allowed to thrive by themselves. You had the Marvel Cinematic Universe that was doing its thing based off the comic books, but had its own stuff in it. You had all these TV shows uh, like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and The Punisher and The Defenders and Iron Fist and all that stuff that didn't really have had a different access to the Marvel continuity, but like wasn't allowed to touch anything that it had been that that was touched upon in like the movies. And then you had like the comic books. So now I don't think that we're going to allow stuff like that probably isn't going to happen. Um, The big thing that I noticed is that there's been a definite editorial shift in the comic book side of things to kind of match up with the movies. Um, So far, I don't think that that's, been a bad thing because that editorial shift has been a push for diversity and stuff like that. So like shield, not really existing shield being agents of Wakanda and stuff like that. So it hasn't been bad yet. Do I think that it has the potential to get bad and limit the kind of content that we get out of, you know, uh, that, that comes out of these characters, like in these big toy boxes? Absolutely. I think it's just, it's only a matter of time. Consequently, as Media, because it is more and more concentrated in a few corporations' hands, is it fair to suggest that we may be in a situation where we're going to lose some of the edge and the darker characters, do you think? I mean, 
there are a lot of characters like Jessica Jones, for instance, that doesn't, that don't really, don't fit into the Disney brand. Yeah, not really Disney family friendly stuff. Not, not at all. When we, we think about some of these things that comic books have spoken to and the renaissance, I think, of comic books that are more inclusive. So we have more female characters and we have going to have more color characters of color. Do you think there's a danger of losing other fringe characters? Like, I'm not saying we have a lot of them now. There's not necessarily a lot of representation for anybody in the LGBTQIA community. But is it possible that some of what we see may eventually, or any potential that we had for more inclusion and more representation is going to be in any way held back by this conglomerate method of handling these properties? So what I don't see happening, and I could be totally wrong about this, I hope I'm not, is I don't think we're going to lose the diversity of it. I don't think that we're going to lose, like the women characters being propped up. And I don't think we're going to lose like, you know, I think, you know, the people of color in that universe, I think that stuff is not going to go away. What I do think has the potential to happen is more in terms of the kind of content that some of these characters kind of inherently create, like Jessica Jones, super dark, alcoholic, been through some traumatic experiences. Um, The great thing about the TV show, it was about trauma it was about how somebody who deals with a super traumatic event and, and like kind of the aftermath of that. And that was not always dealt with in a healthy way and bad things came of that. And it was dark and gritty, that kind of stuff. I think we could potentially that, that could go away for sure. That's where I see this going. So I think it's just kind of, I mean, and I don't want to frighten people, but if we think about how already our media landscape has changed so much between going to the theater on a Sunday afternoon or everybody sitting around and watching something on Netflix. Now there's been some, you know, the internet for all of its good and bad. One of the best things about it is it democratized information, right? Everybody could get anything they wanted. And for a long time we've been able to, but as more and more of these big media conglomerates take over certain things and as filmmaking that that blurred line between what is created on a streaming service and what is created in a back lot on a film and then, you know, put it in your local sixplex um, <clears throat> changes. I mean, I'm concerned. I mean, there's already some controversy at the Academy Awards this year over Alfonso Cuaron's movie that was made and on Netflix getting an Oscar as best foreign language film. Like, that is a concern. Like what happens to independence and yeah, darker, edgier content. If we see that suddenly there aren't any more sixplexes even because it's just not economical for movie theaters to continue to run or <clears throat> film companies to continue to make content for that sort of a place. I mean, I remember back when I was a kid having, you know, two full-size single screen theaters in my hometown and then the sixplexes came and then the single screen theaters shut down. Like already by, you know, splitting off populations and offering more than one thing. So a family could send the kids to the P, you know, the G movie while they went to the PG movie or whatever, you know, they literally separated things out and the internet has just done that more so. So like 
I just think about like where does that leave our our storytellers when the pipeline has to go through Disney or wherever. I mean, and I'm not trying to like be a huge alarmist, but I think based on what we've seen as trends, I think this is something it's disconcerting and it's even more disconcerting when you think about, okay, so Marvel's already changed how they write comic books as a result of the MCU reboot in film. What is that going to say for it after Disney gets done making that comic books, Disney compliant? It's it's all going to be a bunch of white bread bullshit. (laughs) Like we're going to lose those really compelling stories that shed light on the darker aspects of just our reality. I mean, those stories are, we all know everybody, I'm sure probably listening to this knows and realizes this. Those are, those are stories that are worth telling. And they are also, you know, there's, there's stories worth telling and there's stories that are, that are worth being consumed. And I, I can't, that under no circumstances should that go away. And I think that's, that's the big threat here. Yeah, I'm concerned. The only Marvel property I've really been invested in in like the last probably five, six years has been Legion on FX. Mm -hmm. And it is definitely not family friendly. It has some very questionable stuff that goes on in that comic. The comic itself was problematic when it was written, but the show is dark too. And so, you know, I worry I mean, I, that was one of the complaints made about Luke Cage, and I imagine that and and Jessica Jones's content were it wasn't just that Disney wanted them off the air because Disney bought them and we're going to restream them. They Disney wanted them off the air because they're not brand, right? And um, that that's disconcerting because it's like, well, what is going to happen with those characters and those stories and not, any other characters and stories that come out of comic books that don't fit within this very narrow view of the whole. I hate to say this, but the parochial and paternal and maternalistic um, overprotective nature of media in this country driven by a very small segment of the consumer population is just very concerning. So I, I, and I I don't want to get too far off because it's not really what we're talking about. We're supposed to be talking about comic books, but I think it's an interesting little laboratory in which to inspect what's going on with media is to look at what's gonna what is going to happen or follow with marvel's acquisition by disney to see what what to expect so that we can be on it right away well it's just it's a relevant conversation kind of regardless of the content that you're talking about because if if it's content that you like that we're talking about that is under existential threat right now right yeah and I, i think that's important so to swing back in a little bit on comic books and discuss the stuff that we had intentionally, you know, we had initially intended to discuss. We have discussed previously women written comic books since they're not technically creators unless they're writing for Image or one of the other independent labels. But women comic book writers and the new resurgence of representation in female superheroes and even just female protagonist comic books that are written for a general audience, I think, but is definitely representative for women that we can, women can get involved in. Cause like, I think, I don't know if it made it into discussion and if it did from earlier, we can just remove this. But you know, when I was growing up, comic books were a boy thing, mm-hmm. but 
I think there was a lot of assumptions in general that the demographics for comic books were boys just because that's who people mostly saw buying them. But there's lots of girls who are like me, got them from cousins or girls who got them, inherited them from their older brothers. And it's kind of like the gaming culture presupposition that, you know, there are no girl gamers. And like I said earlier, I played every console ever created from the time that console gaming was allowed. So sometime in the early 80s and, you know, Donkey Kong and Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man and um, Mario World and you name it, the original Dungeons Dragons iteration. I mean, all those things. I played them at a, a friend of mine's house and she was a girl and her parents bought those for her. And we, you know what I mean? We were on them all the time. Right. And when we weren't doing that, we'd go to the mall and play, go to the arcade and play them all. So like I was a gamer in 1983, folks girl gamer they existed and my friend that was that this was with us definitely doesn't fit anybody's idea of a gamer she was a super femmy girl with you know boat shoes and pink eyes odds and too much hairspray and too much mascara like literally which is not right so like not at all what anybody would tell you today is the gamer girl demographic at least right. not until you know we started having content creators on patreon and on on youtube that that challenged the question as to whether all people who are involved in games and particularly all girls that are involved in games are overweight overweight cheeto munching glass wearing nerdlets because we're not so all kinds of different <laughs> yeah we do we we're all kinds of women who play all kinds of games and read all kinds of books and all kinds of comic books and watch all kinds of movies and are interested in all kinds of things because contrary to popular belief we're not a stereotype when we had a conversation i guess what i want you to kind of run us through is like you know your short list of favorite female writers both with the big two and if you have any specific ones from indie imprints i'd love to hear about them and just kind of run us through that like so what i'm gonna do is because i have a i have a very limited window i don't read like broad i I only there's only specific kinds of books that i that i read so i mean i'm gonna mention people that i haven't read but that i know are heavy hitters that i think people would appreciate so the biggest one that i can think of right now is kelly sudaconic i think she's kind of considered like the grand dom of like female comic book writers now she's been around for a long time she's written a lot of really great stuff the the revamping of carol danvers who was not always captain marvel who was like miss marvel and binary and i think those are the only two people carol danvers ever was as like captain marvel i think that was kelly sue that did that i'm not 100 percent sure but it was her she had a revitalizing, like, revamp run of Captain Marvel as Carol Danvers that I want to say happened in, like, 2011, 2012. That is really, really good. It's wonderful. Everybody should go read it. That all is put into, like, big collections now because of the movie that's come out, so it should be pretty easy to find. And I think it started with a number one issue. That run is kind of what the Captain Marvel movie was loosely based upon. She's also just a really, really decent writer, which is surprisingly difficult to find uh, in comic book writing more difficult than you'd think. I've read some pretty, like, people who are, you know, people who are considered to be fair talents in uh, as comic book writers that aren't that good. The other big one that I know people are definitely going to be most familiar with, too, would be, like, Gail Simone, who did... 
She's primarily, but not exclusively, she started off writing for DC, doing like Birds of Prey, and she did a really great one of Batgirl, that she's pretty famous for. She also wrote Deadpool for a while. I haven't seen any of the Deadpool movies, but so far as I understand, she makes a cameo in the first movie, because I think that was her run on Deadpool was what the movie was also loosely based upon. So you can go look for her face. Um, haven't read any of her stuff, but if you're into comic books, mostly comic books, but just pop cultural stuff in general, in general, Gail Simone's Twitter feed is an absolute delight. She's an, she's an amazing human being. You should check that out. Otherwise, there's G. Willow Wilson, who wrote, I'm only mentioning their big two stuff. I know that Kelly Sue has written like Bitch Planet and uh, another one that I can't think of right now. Gail Simone's done some creator owned or just not big two stuff before too. G. Willow Wilson wrote Miss Marvel. I don't know what else she's written. Despite their, well, I can't forget, I'm not going to close this out quite yet. Kelly Thompson, who is like the writer at Marvel right now, I think she might be exclusive to them, wrote Hawkeye, which was Kate Bishop Hawkeye, a solo book that got canceled depressingly after like 17 issues, delightful and hilarious and kooky and off the wall. Um, West Coast Avengers, which is a weird like mishmash of, uh, it's, they're like a hodgepodge superhero, like West Coast Avengers, just kind of cobbled together, trying to keep their stuff together, save LA from all kinds of existential threats. It was also wonderful. Clint Barton's in that, Kate Bishop's in that. Uh, there's a couple other people. Also got canceled. She writes Mr. and Mrs. X. I think that's still going. She's writing Uncanny X-Men with a bunch of other people right now because that got brought back. Um, she's writing Jessica Jones and doing a really spectacular job of that. Took that over right after Brian Michael Bendis left kind of abruptly Marvel for DC and is writing Captain Marvel. Other than that, there's a depressing lack of, despite you see all this push for diversity in the characters, but you're not seeing so much the diversity on the on the creator side of things with the big two. I don't read a lot of creator owned or not big two comics. Like there's a couple, I follow writers more than I follow characters. So there's a couple of titles that I follow, none of which <laughs> are written by women though. But I'm, there's probably more diversity on that side on than, than there is in the big two for sure. Do you think that's one of those things that people should also, when they're engaging comic books, and I know <clears throat> a couple of young families that like have daughters and they're geeky families, and I'm sure a lot of millennials and Gen Y people who have kids, they're, they want to have representation for their kids in comics, and they should they be afraid of like checking out alternative imprints besides DC and Marvel? Well, in terms of like it being like more kid friendly you definitely have to be careful outside of the big two because it's a lot more it's like the difference between like hpo and like cable like in network television like there's gonna be some stuff they let some stuff fly you're so not gonna want but if you're if you are more interested in looking there is a way bigger variety of things and types of people and faces and stuff like that on the more independent side of things than there definitely is in the big two and only Marvel really right now is doing the big push and it's only happening in 2019. You know what I mean? Right. Whereas I feel like that kind of diversity on the more independent side of things like image and dark horse and other publishers has always kind of existed right. just because it's not a universe in which they have to labor. It's all just separate titles that, that don't, that aren't under this like broader continuity. Which I think it, it for me, I think that's one of the reasons I gravitate towards independent comic imprints is that I don't have to deal with that. 
Right. Like, I'm not going to, like, pick up a comic book and go, oh, no, now I need to go read this whole other series of characters I don't give a shit about because I just missed, like, 15 chapters of what this story is. Right. Because it dovetailed somehow, and I have to go, I have to cross-reference. And so I like that, but, you know, I get it that some people don't. So basically what you're saying is, like, any other media, like any other media, if you, you know, want to bring your kids into comic books and you are a little concerned that some of – this consolidation in the upper media is gonna, I mean, it's gonna give you the representation you want, but it might also, you know, completely rubber cap the world for your kids, which I don't know. I'm agreeable to that. It's just like any other media. I mean, I'm not gonna get my kid, my 10 year olds are gonna ask me for an Eminem CD and I'm just gonna go get it for him without listening to it first. So, right. Like anything, you have to be active, <clears throat> an active parent, right? And like read these things before then. Or talk to people who you know have read them and see what they think about. But it's interesting. And I think that's funny that you bring that up. That like while there is this huge push for diversity in characters, there's not that much actual representation in the people who are writing them. That's going to be a whole separate animal to tackle. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Uh, the parody, I mean, that is true of like any industry though. You know, even content creation is the same. Like it doesn't matter what kind of how diverse the content they're creating. That doesn't necessarily mean that the people behind it are. I mean, in some cases it has been true, like with Tawny Hissy Coates writing Black Panther for a while and stuff like that. But otherwise it's still just, you know, there, there's like a handful of people. And I just, that, that'll be a, an entirely separate issue to tackle that has a lot more to do with, I don't know, whatever politics exist in the con, the, the comic content creator you know atmosphere and i have i have no idea what any of that stuff is not a I sort of group. i know this sounds really horrible but and and i and i don't mean to be offensive to guys i'm really not trying to do that so before i say anything let me couch it and i i love men and i don't this isn't you know but it's seems to me and always has sort of seemed to me a lot like what you get in Silicon Valley, which is super yeah. male heavy at the top. And it's super nerdy male heavy at the top, which tends towards certain atmosphere when it comes to women involved and like chefs, like the kitchen for the same reason that there's definitely boys club areas where you either go with the flow or you go Right. And I guess but, the point that I was trying to make and I didn't put it succinctly is I think that that boys club exists probably in like almost every industry. If it exists in that, I don't know why it wouldn't exist in, you know, the comics creator, in, you know, that industry too. You know, it kills me about this. It makes it really, it, it, it amuses me no end. And this is totally non sequitur, but I'm going to say it is that women have been involved in porn more than they have been anywhere else. Pornography, like literally porn is more representative representational of women than anywhere (laughs) women are like women content creators trans content creators gay content creators like literally people who make content for their specific audience and it being democratized it's like porn is like the most you know gender balanced industry and that should scare people I am mean, not saying that porn's bad because I'm a sex positive feminist. So I don't have the same. I'm not the Gloria Steinem type. Um, I right. think we, women should have sex any way they want to have sex with, with as many people as they'd like to for any reason that feels reasonable to them. Like that's their yardstick, not mine. Um, but I mean, well, go ahead. 
Oh, you, you go ahead. But at the same time, that porn is more willing, which is one assumes all kinds of things about sex work that it's not women don't have any voice in it and the women aren't creating and the women, you know, women are always victimized that there's so many more females that are uh, CEOs or main content creators for different pornography outlets than there is, you know, in wall street or in Hollywood or, you know, anywhere. It's it's something to consider when people are <laughs> talking about this issue in particular, because like if porn can democratize to that level where representation is a thing that's actually important and drives their content, really, then how do we how do how do these other media justify maintaining a glass ceiling? I just <laughs> they don't. I mean, they can try, but it's not, it's not an actual justification and people might not want to hear it, but Hey, I have no problem with using the porn industry as a kind of template for that kind of diversity amongst the ranks of like, you know, owners and creators and stuff like that. I, I'm not opposed to that at all. Right. I think it's, I just think it's an interesting analogy to draw is like, how come, how come, you know what I mean? To some extent, I suppose it's the entrepreneurial nature of pornography, too, is that it, you know, it is really just anybody with a camera and two people who want to screw. I mean, it's not like, right? you know what I mean? But at the same time, you know, they're, they're making money at it because there's an audience for it and the representation does matter. And it's it's clear that it matters by what content sells where and how it sells and who's making it that representation in pornography matters too. And, and, and apparently porn recognized this a while ago. Like I don't, right. like I don't, you know, where's everybody else on this? But anyway, that's beside the point. So what do you think? Here's, here's a question we talked about yesterday, like when we were kind of preying for this pre-gaming for this. So there's been a lot of, mileage been given to this Bechdel test, right? Yep. The the test of representation in any media. Can you give us a rundown on one, what the Bechdel test is? Because you are probably the most, other than me reading it off Wikipedia, you're probably the most succinct explainer of Bechdel test I've ever heard. And two, then explain to me why the Bechdel test doesn't work. So the Bechdel test was, um, created by actually a person who is not a big two, like an independent comic book writer named Alison Bechtel, best known for a fun home, which was turned into a musical. And she's made a bunch of really, she also did a comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For It. She's a lesbian. Um, about kind of, it's, it's it, rep- representation of women. So the requirement is that two women must be named in a story in general, like if there's not two named female characters, you automatically flunk. But the other biggest function that it has, or like a metric that it, that it has, is that if two of those named characters are talking to each other, are they talking to each other about something other than a man? <laughs> like another man in the story. I don't, <clears throat> I don't think it's a useless test at, by any means. Do I think it's the most, um, like it's it's not you'd be surprised how much stuff you read that doesn't pass the Bechtel test that's just fine and you don't 
even really notice that it's going on. I think like a far more utilitarian way to look at whether or not something is truly feminist in a work is like the concept of fridging. If we wanted to talk about that, which was like a term coined by another comic book creator. This whole concept was created out of a situation that happened specifically in a comic book. And I have not read the comic book. It was Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner's Green Lantern. He's off doing something and his girlfriend gets killed and literally shoved in her body, shoved into a fridge. And he comes back and like finds her in it. Hence the term fridging. And essentially that death functions um, in the, in the, in the story to make Kyle Rayner a better man. And I think that is a way more, <laughs> that I think is a way more useful test. And it doesn't even have to be death, but it, it could be, you know, the violent sexual assault of a woman character yeah. in a story or any, any really, really terrible thing that a writer or creator would do to a woman character in order to make a, a male character a better person and that is the only function that that woman character is suffering serves i think that that is way more useful and is way more indicative of like insidious sexist like stereo you know misogyny and stereotypes that that we just that exist in this world than say like the bechdel test like the original jessica jones comic books which are known as alias written by a man definitely like actually feminist but does that under a, in a couple circumstances, absolutely blow the Bechdel test. Yes, because in the comic books, Jessica Jones is actually really good friends with Carol Danvers before she's Captain Marvel, and the only thing they like they ever really do when they're around each other is talk about dudes. Did it ruin the whole thing for me? No. Do people do that in real life? Like. Do I have, I'm, I'm not straight, but do I definitely have like women friends who get together with each other and just sit and talk smack about boyfriends and stuff? Absolutely. Like I don't necessarily see in every circumstance the inherent problem in that. You know what I mean? Cause I mean, in any scene in any woman's life, that's not what all we talk about when we're with guys or with our girlfriends is guys. Right. And like, if talk every, about jobs, but there might be a Wednesday wine night, right? <laughs> right. Where everybody just spends the whole night bitching about all this fucking guy. So we didn't pass the Bechdel test and that's real life. I mean, yeah. it might, next Wednesday, it might be whining about, you know, people at work. Right. So and that also, episode of our life was, was yeah. not sexist, and, but clearly the Wednesday yeah. previous was. And it's also not like Bechtel testing. It's also not the most intuitive thing to spot in the whole entire world. Sometimes you have to be paying attention to look for it because yeah. usually it, it's just like a single instance or a couple of instances that it happens. But even yeah. under, I think the Bechtel test, I could be wrong with that even happening once, whatever you're looking at flunks the test. So see, and that's just ridiculous to me. So, um, cause men exist in our world. That's true. Um, <laughs> Unfortunate for some people, apparently, but I, I have a problem with it. So the reason I brought that up is because you were talking about, what was her name? The lady who wrote what became the first Deadpool movie. That was, was, that was Gail Simone who invented the concept of fridging, which I think is, that was the more, <laughs> the, the, the way more useful metric to, to measure sexism in a, in a work of art. Okay. So she, she's the one that came up with that. And then Deadpool's woman is fridged in the very first 10 minutes of, the movie? Um, this movie too. 
Uh, well, <laughs> I'm sure that if you go back to Gail Simone's uh, Twitter page, she didn't write the movies or anything like that. Right. I'm sure she probably has some delightfully choice things to say about that. Right. Because he falls apart and then he agrees to join the X-Men for a short period of time in Deadpool 2. Yeah, I haven't seen those yeah, movies. Yeah, it's so. – it's it's interesting because I got to thinking about this and there's like fridging happens in all kinds of media. People are big on the fridging thing. I don't think that men who write it really understand. I know that it's supposed to be, but look, he lost something and he really understood the value of what he lost. And so it's changed him fundamentally. I don't have a problem with the desire to use that as plot development, right? But I have a problem with it from the standpoint that it's so frequently done. Yeah. Like no, that's the only is, way that men can it grow is, is by losing yep. women. It's, it's, uh, it is a frequently employed crutch or like plot device or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And so, and I was interesting because you'd mentioned her in that context and then was, you know, I having just watched Deadpool two recently was sort of like, Oh no, that's curious. Right. <laughs> but I think it's interesting that that's, and I think that is a reasonable thing to say. I think that's one of those things. It's like maybe the Bechdel test and maybe fridging, and maybe we can come up with some other things. But then again, at the same time, sometimes that really is the impetus for people changing. I just don't think it should be, like you said, it shouldn't be a replete trope that happens in like every whatever. Or like the only reason that you wrote this female character is to fridge her so that this could happen. You know right. what I mean? Like that's the only reason that she's there, which is exactly what happened in that original instance that Gail Simone based it on, so far as I understand. Right. I think it's interesting. There's an interesting kind of swap that happens in Legion. That's I don't know if it technically meets the proofs of fridging, but it's really an interesting story device. And that is David's sister ends up being murdered by one of the bad guys some way into the series episode or season three. She has some other things that she gets in trouble and he has to go help her, which there's the damsel in distress trope is part of it. But his sister is also pretty plucky. And if she had superpowers, she'd be able to help herself. But she mostly just, you know, doesn't and is dealing with evil mutants. So she's she's kind of at a loss. And there's plenty of other empowered females in this show that, you know what I mean? Like, that's not an issue. But her sister ends up dead. But interestingly (sighs) enough, her body becomes a vessel for another female persona. Or (laughs) another female persona ends up being the body vessel for her spirit. So, like, there's these two women who are very different in one body. And they are at odds about how to deal with help or fix a situation that David, the lead character <laughs> finds himself in because now we do have somebody, she is in a body that has some superpowers kind of, you're not really sure where they all come from and whether this body is a construct or what's going on with it. Cause it seems to be being manipulated by two very powerful psychics, but it's it's pretty fascinating. I, I had to think about that for a minute. So does David's sister get rich technically? I don't know. And it doesn't really do anything to change him except make him mad. And then he does worse things. Like he doesn't uh... get better. He gets worse because he's already tenuously, you know, capable of any kind of impulse control. And then when his sister 
is in serious jeopardy and he believes her to be dead, he sort of decides everybody can fuck off and he's going to break all the rules and do what he wants. I mean, maybe like under the the classical definition of fridging, uh, I think that might get a pass. (laughs) Right? And especially (laughs) since she's not like really dead and kind of with this other character that you're – you know, it's like she's got her own thing to work out. I think eventually his sister's going to take over this body, right? And yeah, and kick the ass of this other entity, which I think in the in the end sum is probably bad. <laughs> like, right? So she's kind of a great character with evil tendencies. This other person, but his sister is definitely like a 1960s housewife, complete with the hairdo and the matching shoes and dress and purse, like. So when she enters this world, it's culture shock for her in every way possible. So it's interesting. But I have to continue. And the sad part about it is it's its last season this year. Did that get the axe too for the it, same reason that everybody else? For the same else? reason. Yeah, yes. I was and they are, yeah, I'm really sad about it because <clears throat> I've really enjoyed it. And I have enjoyed it for a lot of reasons. The writers have really gone places that are really challenging for that show. Like really, really challenging. Some stuff took place in the last episode of last season that really ignited a controversy in the fandom about rape and what constitutes rape. And it, it, yeah, there is some really interesting stuff and it was very disturbing and one of the things I, I want to push back about, people go, well, I don't need all that dark shit. And I, I understand that. Like comic books or movies or books, you but you have an option not to read it, not to yeah. view it, not to participate. But here's the thing is that rape happens in our world. And, and we had this conversation yesterday. The only thing that really matters to me in writing is that it's true. Now, I don't mean that to apply to fiction. Well, fiction's never true. It's made up. Yes, I know. But that the characters are human and their experiences are human experiences. This is important to me. So when rape happens in a show, I don't go, oh, my God, why they have to put a rape in the show? Why is that necessary in the storyline? Maybe it is. If writing is supposed to be representative or reflection of a human experience, then what happens in humanity needs to be reflected in fiction. Which means if a rape took place in this show... It, the writers put it there because we're supposed to think about it. Absolutely. Right? There's a purpose. A writer doesn't just include that for period reasons. I mean, some writers do, I suppose. Well, I think that it is important to examine the, the circumstances under which that kind of stuff is employed in fiction. But do I think that that stuff should completely disappear? No. <laughs> right. Abs- absolutely not. Which is why I sided, you know, with... I sided with Lena in Game of Thrones with the Cersei and Jamie quote unquote rape. Is it rape scene in the books? It doesn't quite go down like it does in the show. Not sure. I understand entirely why the show creators wanted to go there, but I think Lena really well explained it from the actress's perspective and the character and why it was important at that point in the character development for both characters that that took place. I don't judge it because it happens. I mean, and it's not the first rape in game of Thrones. And one of them is one that the, some, some people will romanticize the shit out of. 
which doesn't make any sense to me. I think it contributes to the downfall of one of the primary characters. When that stuff gets introduced, I think it's really interesting. And by the way, I'll tell you that that happened in Legion. That was a thing. People were really upset. There was a lot. And then there were the men who were like, that's not really rape. And I'm like, well, yeah, kind of is. Um, It definitely made consent a fuzzy situation in the same way that like, you know, beer pong makes consent questionable. But I think we're supposed to question it. Like, I think that's the point. Like, that's why it took place is that we were supposed to be like, because the entire season talks about what is reality and what isn't. And is reality what's perceived or is there an objective reality? Like the entire season to the point where throughout the season, John Hamm narrates a philosophical tract about the nature of reality, like through the whole season. So like, that's the whole point of it. And I don't want to see those things go away. So like, that's my concern too, when we were talking earlier about media consolidation and what that means and dark content and female representation how do we have female representation in our characters if their females are also don't experience the things that women experience in this world? And unfortunately, rape is still a thing we experience. It's 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 a tough issue. It really it really <laughs> is. This is this is why it's a question. This is why we're talking about it because it, it, I I agree with you one hundred percent. I don't think that that kind of content should go away. But do I think that it should be? Ex- employed exploitatively absolutely not right i mean <clears throat> that was the thing about jessica jones that was that was all about she would been she she was under you know mind control and stuff and had been you know repeatedly you know raped by this person because she had to do exactly what he said and i did all that so then what it was is it became it, it just opened this dialogue amongst everybody who watched it about you know issues of consent um trauma the things that people have to deal with, the way that they are, the way that they've changed after stuff like that happens to them. And I feel like that's a really, if, if that's what content like that does is it starts a discussion about, you know, issues that are, you know, relevant and tough that happen in reality, then I, then, then that, that's a good thing. That's, that's only a good thing. And I have to say, that's one of the things that I think my, I value most about Marvel. Like if there's a lot of other things about Marvel that are over history that have been kind of questionable. Um, and I know there's a cult of Stan Lee, but there are things is that Marvel in general has bad, better representation all the way through. It might not have always been perfect representation. In other words, the characters might not have always stepped outside of tropes or made us question stereotypes, particularly but I mean, there's been a black X-Men for a really long time. And right. not only is it a black X-Men, it's a black female X-Men. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it, that's a thing. And DC, they have always been better. Yeah, and DC has not. You know, if they really wanted to surprise me. How come they didn't make Batman black anywhere? I mean, we're going to get into colorblind casting, and I think we should consider it. Because it works if it's done well, it works. I'd love to see Idris Elba as fucking Batman. Just he, say that, he, he would make an excellent Batman and he would make an excellent Bruce James Wayne. Bond. Oh, yep. And excellent James Bond. Like, how yep. come he didn't get James Bond? This is like, so, but if we, you know, DC has got a lot further to go. I mean, granted, they did have Eartha Kitt, right, as Catwoman. I'm not going to take that away from whoever created the original Batman TV live action series. Um, 
and that's fine. But that's really kind of it. I mean, it really is. Most all of the rest of the superheroes are either alien. If they're different, they're aliens that don't look like humans exactly. Um, <laughs> and that's like, you know, but why not? I mean, and I they've, am- had, they've had little part characters here and there. And there's the guy in in um, Teen Titans, right? But it it just doesn't stack up against what Marvel's done. Right. No. And, and Marvel historically has been willing to tackle tough social issues that I just don't, DC just doesn't have a history of doing that. And still, I think that they're a little bit gun shy considering all the controversy that is swirling about these diversity efforts that are happening at Marvel. I think that that I I think that they just don't I think they're afraid to even begin to touch the thing which is a shame cuz you're right we don't have it we have like batwoman like you know they have they have the lesbian they don't really there's not a, there's not a whole lot they keep canceling her book it's like it's yeah. it, it's and it's there's been... clearly a desire for it i mean how much <clears throat> fan fiction and alternate fiction in the dc universe has put um harley quinn and poison ivy together in a romantic relationship i think that there was something that just happened that made that canon but i could be wrong people might people might want to google that which is right and it's always been a significantly healthier relationship for both of them for both of them the relationships with men were fraught yeah i mean all the time i think dc the closest dc has gotten has been some of the conversations around um, Harley Quinn's relationship with the Joker and Stockholm syndrome and what it's like to be an abused female and how, you know, one comes back from that or figures out what, who they are, at, you know, in the vacuum of your abuser disappearing or ex- right. exiting your life, which I, I think is valuable and I love. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's at the same time, I just don't, it just doesn't feel like they haven't, I, they haven't really done anything about it. <laughs> like right. really. So, which is, which is, uh, except for maybe that one thing where they like maybe almost kissed or they did kiss and like not even like a mainline book. It was like the sirens mm-hmm. of them or weird thing that like not a whole many people read and probably in other books. Harley Quinn was maybe still with the Joker or, you know, yeah. whatever. Right. I haven't read a DC anything and I, since they, I can't even tell you how long. It's probably about a year and a half, two years, or since whenever right. they canceled. I don't know the last Batwoman book, but and that's unfortunate. I mean, and that's that's also just a sad, unfortunate situation that we have to deal with comic books in general. But I think DC is like far more unapproachable, and that's their problem with being able to make changes. You know, Marvel came in swinging a hammer already, and DC just hid. For a long time behind these issues and now when it seems like they're going to have to in order to maintain or get any new readership, they're kind of stuck in a hole. They're going to have to really dig themselves out. And I guess I don't I don't even really know what's going on with their with their numbers when it when it comes to books and if, if they're doing better than Marvel or or what that whole situation is. It may have turned into incel land. La, la. And why don't they just rewatch Batman movies? Because there's plenty of just white people in that. No, I mean, there's a, there's a particular, I mean, they, even, they even whitewashed Harvey Dent finally <laughs> hot take. Uh, and I hate saying that because I love Aaron Eckhart. I think he's fucking fantastic, but like Harvey Dent in the first two Batman movies, Tim Burton movies, 
you know, a black guy. And then, and even in the animated series, a black guy. And then suddenly white dude, Tommy Lee Jones. And then Aaron Eckhart. And it's like, uh, uh, <laughs> what? I was really upset about that. Yeah. I have to admit, I was really, that's one of the consistent bitches I've had about, about the Batman franchise since, uh, they changed Harvey Dent in, um, the movie in that last one with what's his name with with Tommy Lee Jones when they made Tommy Lee Jones Harvey Dent Two Face I was that was I was done like that movie was terrible fucking terrible already but that really burnt my ass I got really mad I'm like you know the actor for this is still alive <laughs> you don't have just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Yeah, I mean, how many <laughs> how many really expensive actors did you need to have in that fucking movie anyway? Because we can go down the list, right? It's you know, it's a huge thing. They like they spent every blew every dollar wad they could like on that movie that they couldn't have just you know got Billy D. Williams and what? I, I just don't understand it. But whatever, I'm not gonna bitch too much about DC because they're also the you know the they were the parent of some other properties and independent that I really liked. So. Oh yeah. They don't completely suck. They just kind of suck by comparison. (laughs) Right. You know, and I still, I still, you know, I love my, I love my bat group, you know, titles and stuff, you know, like I still love Batman and, you know, no man's land from the nineties introduced a lot of like really excellent female characters and like get to see, you know, Batgirl is Oracle and you get introduced to, um, to Renee Montoya, you know, they're not, they're not totally terrible. They're just not as good. Yeah. So out of female characters rundown. Oh, who I like, who is important. Both of the, all of the above. All of the above. Captain Marvel's really great. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep hammering that one. Cause she's around right now. Super excellent character. Really, really digging how powerful they're making her just so that she can even be considered to be like amongst like just at the, at the level of like all of the dudes and stuff on the Avengers. Also Carol Danvers is just, she's, she's really great. I just, I, I I like Kelly Sue DeConnick's Carol Danvers. She's funny and she's irreverent and she's just like, she's super, she's just great. You should check, check her out. Um, and even like any after Kelly Sue DeConnick, like Margaret Stoll wrote Captain Marvel and the life of Captain Marvel, which kind of ties the comic books into the movies. And those weren't bad books at all. And Kelly Thompson's doing a pretty good job with her. Jessica Jones. I, I love, I love, 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 love Jessica Jones. She just cannot keep her shit together. And she tries so hard and it just never works out for her you gotta read alias it doesn't pass the Bechtel test i'm sorry to say that still absolutely worth the read there are some scenes in there that are that are just amongst they're they're just they're beyond they're they're some of my favorite things i've ever read before period not just in comic books but in movies or books or whatever with uh her and the her and the purple man in in that that's it's kind of incredible. So Jessica Jones is up there. She's super 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 great character. Um, Batwoman, big Batwoman fan because well for a bat Batwoman 
can't go wrong there. It's not stupid and derivative. She has her own kind of story like Batman's, but it's a little bit more compelling for me personally because it has a lot to do with her sexuality. And that character, I think, has been pretty mistreated by DC. I could go into that. It would take a really long time. And I, that was also a big reason that one of the best comic book writers out there that I recommend to everybody, Greg Rucka, his his like departure from ever writing for, for the big two, but particularly I think DC ever again kind of swirled around what they decided to do with that character. Boy, who else? There's so, there's, there's actually, there's quite a few good ones. Oh, there was a really good Spider Woman as Jessica Drew, who is also like a, who is a PI. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like Jessica Jones, Kate Bishop and Jessica Drew. There's like all of these weird half superhero, barely keep their stuff together. Uh, but she's Spider Woman. Uh, there was, I can't remember. It was a dude who wrote it, but it was really wonderful. There is no Spider Woman book happening right now, but she did have a solo book where she had a kid, like a single, like single parent. Like you don't know who the fight, just whatever. She's pregnant. She has a baby. This is how she deals with her life as a single mom, even though she's a superhero that I thought was really good. Check that out. That was the last Spider Woman book that was published. So that shouldn't be too hard to find. Kate Bishop, Hawkeye, super great too. Gets introduced in uh, Young Avengers by um, Kieran Gillen, who's another really great comic book writer and, you know, has appeared kind of all over the place in Matt Fraction's run on Clint Barton's Hawkeye. She plays a really big run. Matt Fraction being Kelly Sue DeConnick's husband, that is also worth checking out. The dynamic between Clint Barton and Kate Bishop is kind of unmatched. It's definitely worth checking out. And then she eventually got a solo book that got canceled that Kelly Thompson wrote that was just delightfully kooky and wonderful. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on, but I'll keep that brief to like my biggest ones that I've read in the past. Well, okay. Since this is also relevant, I'm going to stop myself. And this is going to be controversial. We were talking about this yesterday. Check out the Dark Phoenix saga from the Uncanny X-Men from that Chris Claremont wrote, I don't, in the 80s? I guess I don't know when it came out. Not so much because Jean Grey's a great character, but because of what Chris Claremont did with that character, it's also considered just to be like, it's it's a classic. Actually, not the 80s. This was in the 60s. I didn't, <laughs> 1963 was when the Phoenix and Dark Phoenix stuff happened. So we're looking at Uncanny X-Men. That's really old, like issue 101. But that, that's just, it's considered to be one of the best stories ever told in comic books. I usually am not one of those people who is just like, well, just because people tell me it's like the best thing ever, like a bunch of people agree. I am just contrarian enough to be like, whatever. But you really should read it. It's wonderful. It's thought provoking. People would probably consider it passe now because it was in the 1960s. But this, this, this tackled some, some issues of, of you know, the femininity and, and being a feminist and, and the way that we expect women to act and walk through the world, especially after they acquire some kind of power over right. everybody around them. And I think that it, I, I think it's, it's good. Every, everybody should read it. And Chris Claremont is just, he's in the pantheon of great comic book writers. And it's, it's really wonderful. And it's cool because it's like the old school style of comic book writing where it's heavily narrated by like just a somebody up you know whatever so there's a lot of square like, boxes 
yeah, there's a lot of square boxes, but that's where a lot of the really, really good writing is. Right. So, and also that movie with Sophie Turner is coming out, not like next Friday, but the Friday after. So that'll be a big thing too. So people will be talking about Jean Grey again, who like doesn't really have a presence anymore, hasn't really had a solid presence since then. Um, like a consistent solid presence in the Marvel universe, which is a shame because that character was used to tell a really great story. And they tried to like, they had a solo book for her that was weird continuity wise, where it was her younger self in the world. I wonder if it's because they knew her. Go ahead. I was just going to say, sorry, you you just go. No, you finish your thought. Okay. So it was like her younger self who knew her future trying to avoid the dark Phoenix thing happening to her. And like, it's like this constant, like it's this voice in her head. She can tell that it's in her and it's her like fighting really desperately to make sure that like history doesn't repeat itself. That got got canceled. Uh, How many times do I have to say that that was really good? And then they did all these team books where it was like X-Men Blue, X-Men Red, X-Men Gold, where the X-Men Red was her in charge of whatever. It was all different. Like all the people that were in X-Men like divided up into little teams. She was in charge of X-Men Red. I think that got canceled. I haven't read. They brought back Uncanny X-Men with a bunch of people. A bunch of people are writing it, um, including Kelly Thompson. I don't know if she's in it. I imagine that she would have to be because it's Uncanny X-Men. But right. She just doesn't have a, it makes me, it makes me real sad that they tried to bring her back and it just, like actually, actually, it just didn't work. Right. I wonder how much of that though is because they made her a broken eye win button. Yeah, that, that was probably, yeah, maybe, which is why I thought it was a really good idea. Just like if you did want to introduce that character narratively, what was going on with that Jean Grey, Jean Grey solo book. Right. Where like she wasn't the broken eye win button like yet yet or if she even would be or if she would you know like there was even the question of if that would ever even happen so yeah because i mean you i just see that that writers get themselves into corners by making like the perfect hero right the with the perfect uh complement of powers so that basically you fucked yourself like because like now no one else is needed well i'll go home Well, yeah, except when, you know, they go, she goes crazy and eats stars and vanquishes entire solar system. Right. But see, that's the thing about Legion, which I think is really interesting from, and not that it's a female character, Kai's, I know, but is that David is, is in the, in the Marvel universe, he is the strongest mutant ever. And this is the thing about him is he's also fucking out of his mind, like batshit crazy. So he can't really be controlled and he really can't even control. So he's kind of like if Jean Grey were a dude and then batshit crazy. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. It's wonderful. And it, I, I know should you, probably watch that show. You should watch the show because fucking uh, Audrey Plaza is in it and she plays. Yeah, that's really, I'm surprised knowing that Audrey Plaza is in it that I haven't watched it yet. And, and she plays this gray character I was talking about that David's sister ends up inhabiting a body with. She's... Wow. Aubrey Plaza is something else. And is she fucking menacing in the show? When she just, when she's being evil, she's fuck. Like, I. Fuck, fuck. She, like, 
she's so like faux menacing and weird, like as a joke, just like yes. when during interviews, but I can't imagine her acting like when she's acting, like for her to actually try to be like a, an actual menacing. I bet it's, <laughs> I bet she's scary. <laughs> she's creepy as shit. Yeah. And, uh, and her acting in it is really good. All the acting yeah. in the show is exceptionally good. Um, Jean Smart's in it and she's really good in it. The guy from Flight of the Condors, I can't think of his name, but he's in it. Um, Dan Stevens, who people might know from um, Downton Abbey and Apostle, which is a Netflix movie, Beauty and the Beast. And he's got a few other movies. He was in High um, Maintenance on HBO. He's a British guy. He's really good in it. He plays David. Um, and it's interesting because yet in the show, they have not breached the fact that he is Charles Xavier's bastard. That's like coming though. Oh, so like <laughs> juicy. <laughs> yeah, so it's very interesting. Um, and it, it, it Legion pushes at a lot of things that I think are really, really valuable. And if you like John Hamm's voice, you know you get to listen to that. In what only sw- reason? Well, two shorts. reasons. That that was one of two reasons that I got as far as I did in Mad Men and that there are no other reasons right yeah because he's just mm, delish but um yeah so that's like limit i don't like i said i don't comic books much anymore i think the last thing i've bought i bought some two independent i just buy independent comics it's like become my thing i it's like umbrella academy check um what was the other one oh sex criminals check like I'm, but I'm not like, you know, I have similarly stopped reading just because there's been, uh, every book that I've liked a lot recently has gotten the ax, like every single one. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going through this period of, you know, I, I just feel apathetic towards it at the moment that always changes. Right. It's just the nature of reading comic books when you don't like, just like, Batman or Superman. If right. you like any of the other weirdos that have, you know, cropped up over the years, you're just, yeah. you are bound to be disappointed over and over and over again. Right. So. Oh, and Saga. See, and I have all of Saga now that I, when I say inherited, it's it. he didn't die, but I you inherited all of, all of his volumes. So I have all of them, but like the last one, cause like they just ended it or whatever. You need, I will, to, I will, you need to borrow them. Me. Yeah. I, I will definitely bring all of those here for you to read. Cause I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed Umbrella Academy. I'm going to have to get some more. I haven't watched the show yet. Though. Me either, which is also surprising because Ellen Page is <laughs> like, they're I've just been told it's really good. Yeah. But so. I think I was maybe, I don't know, I might read that first before I watch it because that's not yeah, necessarily I'm, the order that I always do things in. I think I want to finish reading the comic books before I engage the the TV show on that one because I just really loved the <clears throat> whole concept of these like misfit, abandoned, dysfunctional superheroes that were all related. I mean, they're not related, but they're adopted children, right? Gotcha. You know? And, um, I like anti-heroes, so I'm, this is, it's like crack cocaine for me. So I'm digging it from that standpoint, but like right away I recognize that every 
all the archetypes, there's like five archetypes in dis, in a dysfunctional family for codependency for children in a codependent family. Yeah. And every single one of them is embodied by one of these characters. And are there five exact kids I, too? I'm pretty sure. Or maybe a couple more. I think there's a couple extra characters in the show. But in general, it's that's it. Like the, the lonely child and the rebel and like, they're all in there. Like every single one is in there. So I liked it because I recognized that right away. Gerard Ray was trying to make a dialogue about parenting and children and codependency, which makes perfect sense to me considering right. what we've seen of him and what he writes about. And, you know, my chemical, or not my chemical romance, whatever his band's name is. Is it, uh, is it Gerard Way? Yeah. Yeah, it's my chemical romance. Okay. So like, you know what I mean? You get an idea of what his already well, I- I never listened to My Chemical Romance very much on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but he is, it's interesting. And I really, am in, I really enjoyed it right away. And I have to say that Sex Criminals, at least volume one, was fantastic. I have to go get the follow-ups. But it is really fucked up yeah, and super good. To, uh, we need to take a trip to the comic book store one of these days. It's we been a do. while since we've done we need that. To- we need to go to Jimmy Jams and get some comic books because, yeah, that was just this really good, really, it's funny and irreverent and it's really questions a lot of things. It's, I just think it's really good. It comes off as like, you think it's like, what is this going to be about? But it, and it seems kind of squalid in the beginning because it's two sex addicts who, find out that they can astral project basically when they have orgasms. And so that's, that is an, that's an amazing premise. Right. But one of them is like, she's a decent person. Like the female is a decent person. The guy I think has some moral problems. And so he talks her into bank robbing. (laughs) Cause they could do this. After they have, they have to get in the bank and have sex in the bank, and then they can like, and no one can see them. And that, there's a couple scenes where they're practicing for their bank heist, where they go to the dirty movie store and stop time basically, and move around and fuck up everything in the dirty movie store, and then walk <laughs> out the door, and then it all goes back, and people are all fucked up. And we're like, what the fuck's going on? It's fucking like it's, but it's it poses some interesting questions, and it's really fucking funny, and it's. It's a good, it's a good comic book, which I, I just got it because I thought, well, this is different. This is different. And I'm usually rewarded by things I look at and go, this is just so different than anything I've ever seen before. I'm going to try this. Right. <laughs> oh, I am definitely, if you have like the first volume of that, I'd be, uh, I do. I'd be definitely I do. very interested in reading that. I do. And I also started another one, which I, I finished the first book one. I, I can't remember what the name of it is i'd have to look it up or go downstairs and get it but i'm not going to and it's about about a detective who reminds me a little bit of well a little bit of john constantine but the slow the story is way slower the burn is way slower and i'm not sure that he actually has any like occult abilities like john constantine does but he's in a place where the occult is really strong and he is trying to solve murders that he's been told are unsolved and stop crime that he's told can't be stopped and it's it's interesting it's really an interesting book 
it's dark and noir and I'm a sucker for that. So for both of those things, I really, well, they're both dark and noir. There we go. See, cause it's the same word, but in either case, yeah. Um, I really love, I really love it. Cause I, I mean, a noir, noir in type of like the genre of fiction that it's, you right. know, a cigarette smoking, trench coat wearing PI or detective who's in this place with all these colorful characters and he's got to figure out what's going on, like that kind of noir. And then it's also really dark and gross and scary. There's some fucking situations he gets in like right off the bat where you're like, oh my fuck God, really? Like, really? Holy shit. (laughs) Okay, we'll go here. It's some fucked up stuff, but... Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't comic book hero. I don't wonder woman when I was a kid, Ben Grimm for sure. And you know, I, I'm going to admit right now, I watch Captain America because Chris, I, <laughs> I don't even find him that physically attractive, but he just has the nicest smile. So I was like suckered into it. Uh, I can't, I tried with. I probably need to try more, but Ed Brubaker has a renownedish kind of run on Captain America, and I tried to read the thing, and I got like three issues in. I'm just like, this is not, this is not for me. I, 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 I might find myself enamored of Ant Man only because as I'm reading it, I will be picturing Paul Rudd because he's like the perfect choice, and I love him so much. Yeah. He's another Gen X actor that, like, whenever I see him in a thing, I just get so excited. I don't know what to do with myself. Oh, look at my tail wag. Interesting tidbit about that is I think that in the movie, it's Scott Lang Ant-Man, because, of course, there's been a million Ant-Mans. And in Alias, Jessica Jones briefly dated Scott Lang. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, before she finds out she's pregnant with Luke Cage's kid. Then they break up. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, there's probably some rule 34 or 43 or what's the porn rule? I think it's rule 34. Yeah, there's probably some rule 34 porn about that out there. I mean, if it if it exists, there's porn of it on the internet. <laughs> That's the rule. <laughs> oh, my God. We're terrible. Anyway. <laughs> So I don't want to keep you too much longer because I think we've kind of played it out. But um, if any more good stuff comes in or you want to get on and and talk to me about uh, the Dark Phoenix saga, I am down. Yeah, I mean, if you'd have me, I am preparing I would. to sharpen my pitchfork just like I was preparing to sharpen my pitchfork before Captain Marvel. But I'm feeling good because Captain Marvel did not disappoint me even a little bit. So good so yeah if you want to come back in a few weeks and we can talk about we can talk about sophie turner's turn as jean gray and then about you know the broader implications of what she means for if they're going to continue because she's a really loved actress i can't imagine this is going to be a one-off cartoon or comic or comic movie and then what are they going to do because yeah i just don't know they've done all of the really really good x-men stories with these new x-men movies i don't know what I'm trying to think of like what would be so legendary like that they do next. They've done like maybe well, like God I, God Love Man Kills. I know they've done Days of Future Past. Like I'm just trying to think because I'm really digging that they're like all of these super famous classic X Men arcs are what they're doing with these movies. So, well, I have heard it, it was in the pipeline <clears throat> that we were going to get a Gambit movie. 
Oh, I'm so here for that. I had no but, idea. Well, yeah, except for when you hear who got cast. Oh, no. <laughs> who? I, I have a really hot take. Fuck no to Tan or to Chatham or Tatum Channing. Wow, I can't oh, even say his name. No. That's I. No, mm-hmm. I'm really not. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not excited about no. it. Like even a little bit. No, I just was like, "Are you kidding me? Really?" He's ho- I, no, no. What? Because he was in Magic Mike. He's what? How is that a qualifier? <laughs> I mean, I get it. We're for Captain Marvel, but really? <laughs> or Captain America. I get it. But it's like, seriously, I, you know, I, Chris Evans is a, no, that, no, no. And if you, mm, I just can't. That's just wrong. One, Remy's taller than that in my head. And two, he's not built like a brick shit house. He's, he's a scrawny, wiry little Cajun and I know and they that's a that's a that's an interesting decision (laughs) and if if he can't do the the if he can't do the accent it's it's over (laughs) something tells me that he probably uh, can't well I just (laughs) I mean and I don't mean a shitty Cajun accent either I mean I don't really know, and I could be wrong here, but is the reason that Channing Tatum beloved because he's a good actor? <laughs> is that no? The it's because he looks he's good hot. in tights. Yeah, because he that's looks kind good of what in I a fucking g-string, right? Yeah, Blech. that's what people think. I'm, not, I don't find him even a little bit attractive. So, no. Yeah, same. No, no, <laughs> no. And Remy LeBeau is my, is my, my Marvel Universe waifu. So I'm like not okay with this. In the, even a little. <laughs> this, this is a, this is a. <laughs> Don't wreck my is, waifu. <laughs> Gambit is beloved to you. Your standards are going to be a little bit higher than say like. Yeah. I mean, else's. it's not like he's not my Wolverine daddy, but it's still a thing. <laughs> Yay. Uh, that sucks. Well, those movies take forever to get made and things change about a thousand times before they finally even God, start to get made. So I hope, I hope that that changes. Yeah. Maybe he'll like go gray or get really fat and then he won't be able to do it. I don't know. <laughs> God, terrible. I'm terrible. I'm a horrible human. I don't know who could play him, but not that. That's my answer. I don't care. I don't know who, but I not I can't him. tell you the right choice, but I can tell you all of the wrong ones. Wrong ones, and that would be the first one on the list. <laughs> oh, my God. I'd rather see Zac Efron play him, and that's like, where at least <laughs> at least Zac Efron was really good in the in the um, paper boy, so I know it's possible he can act. I'm right, right. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for doing this with me, even though it took us like two months to get here. <laughs> that was that was mostly my fault. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. I'm really glad that we were able to do it because I think this is something that is an interesting topic and people need to think about, especially nowadays when, you know, for good and bad, as we discussed, our media landscape is changing and our expectations of the media that we consume needed to, you know, hold these companies to account, I think. And so it's good to talk about representation in comic books and good female um, 
female driven and female written and even female created content in comic books because it's been traditionally a place where it's quote unquote for white boys. That's exactly right. So that'll be the end of our coffee critiques and crack pot. Well, not the crack pottery that'll follow up after this, but um, let's just all be thankful to Alyssa and um, we'll get her back on here and we'll talk comic books again soon. Thanks, Thanks for having me. You betcha. Well, surprise, surprise. I found something to kind of complain about. Okay. A lot to complain about. Well, maybe not. I don't know. It's an intellectual thing. So if you get bored with intellectualism, you might as well tune out now. But as a part of my beginning to do some research and some work for this other podcast that I'm doing on Harlots, the Hulu show, and The Handmaid's Tale, also on Hulu, I came across um, the woman who wrote what is basically the story, the history behind Hulu's Harlots. Because it is an actual attempt, I think, to create a relatively good picture of what life in England, in London, was like at that period in history for women who worked as brothel keepers or as bawds and for the women who engaged in sex work in London at the time. A lot of it is derived from a book by an author by the name of Holly Rubinald. She is an English history scholar, uh, a writer, and has written a few different books kind of in this vein, talking about women's work in England, in particular about sex work in England during the late Edwardian Victorian Regency, like through that era and, or those eras. And she's really a great scholar. I mean, she's, you know, she is, she's educated. She knows what she's writing about. She's a historian and she's investigating and interrogating a lot of assumptions that we have all held and that common modern life holds about things like prostitution, um, historical role of prostitutes in culture, all kinds of things. And the book that precipitated Harlots was the Covent Garden Ladies, which was a manual basically for men in London at the time to go to whatever brothel or to find whatever prostitutes it ranked them, rated them. Consumer rating leaflet. And she goes into, she wrote a book about it that looked at the history of how that rag got written and the major players who were involved in it and the culture around it, really, around Covent Garden at the time, which it was a pretty rough neighborhood in London. Um, it's a beautiful park, but uh, it was not a safe place, really. But it was a place where all classes mixed because, of course, barkeeps and prostitutes and opium dens and all those things existed in that neighborhood. So they were all working class folks. And then you had the members of the peerage who frequented these establishments in the evening hours or the day hours, whenever hours they felt the need for drinks, coffee, or alcohol, you know, alehouse, ale or coffee or sex. 
not with their wives or their mistresses. And she's, you know, written some really good stuff. I just started sort of reading through Covenant, the Covent Garden book. But she has a new book that just came out this week um, called The Five. And it is about the five victims of Jack the Ripper. Now, most of us are vaguely familiar with the Jack the Ripper story. Some people are a little more interested in it than others. I'm, of course, interested in Victorian England and Victorian England crime stuff somewhat. Just because as a person who wants to write fiction, I mean, I write it, but, you know, I don't have anything seriously published, but writes fiction. It is a thing that's important. You know, I think that's a fruitful area for writing stuff. And a lot of steampunk is sort of put in that Victorian era. There's a lot of things that kind of cross and I find stuff in books that, and I decide I want to go research it or I'm, and the other is that I love clothes. I love, I love retro clothing. So I'm kind of an armchair historian of costuming and clothing for women um, and men, but for women and what it means about women's lives, the things that, what they wore, how that and affected their daily life. But anyway, so she wrote this book about the women who were his victims, Jack the Ripper's victims. Now, I haven't read the book yet, so I, I'm going to say this. I, I, first of all, it just came out and I don't have the money to buy the book right now, so I will have to wait until I can afford it, but... Based on what I have of Co the Covent Garden book, which I have an ebook for, and I, I find it to be very well written. It's an interesting style. She's clearly done her research. I am a you know went to college for history, so I have a way of looking at historical texts and ascertaining whether I think they're they have a whole lot of merit or not. You have to. You go to college for that. You're expected to you know make arguments based on things you read. So you need to be able to have some critical thinking skills when it comes to what's put before you. But it seems that she is quite capable of doing very good research. And so this book comes out. It's not even quite like the print is not literally not quite dry. She just got her box of corrected hardcovers like a day ago, according to Twitter. And <clears throat> already men who have been consider themselves ripperologists are furious about her book and <clears throat> taking all kinds of tasks with quote unquote her research methods quote unquote her conclusions quote unquote lots of things and so if you understand what I said that she just got her first copies of the hardcover book they haven't even read the book yet and a lot of academics have been coming out to support her and her work. But these guys have just taken to Twitter and social media in a herd. And she is being trolled so hard over their precious construct and theories about who Jack the Ripper was, what his motivations were, what, you know, all of that. Because she challenges what has been the standard narrative that he was killing prostitutes. She argues that some of these women were maybe not whores. They weren't prostitutes. And 
goes into some rationale for that based on her research. I just want to say, because this is a thing that really fucking bugs me, is when somebody who does their research and somebody who comes up with something or finds information that doesn't fit in what we have been taught is the standard narrative for the past, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. We have a real revisionist history streak in this country and and everywhere, really. We don't like, we believe the history is rote and that whatever happened is what we know happened because we apparently know everything about the past. This is one of those deals. It's like you can say all kinds of things about any number of historical people, people that are important in U.S. history or European history or Asian history or African history, South American history. I don't care where. And you can have all the brightest minds for centuries writing a narrative based on extant sources that paints a particular picture of that person. But all it really takes is a lockbox or a cornerstone in a building or a diary or a chest with papers or some lost annal of history and letters to like surface from somebody's granny's dresser to change everything. And it doesn't make what came before completely illegitimate, but it is new facts that have to be integrated into the current narrative. And you can, you don't get to just be pissed off because facts come to light that challenge what you have put your entire life as a professional historian or in some of the cases with these ripperologists, these guys are just <coughs> armchair fanatics. Like I am about a song of ice and fire. It doesn't make me a fucking authority. I might, I might know more about it than some people, but I don't know more about it than everybody. And these people wander around and they pat each other on the back as authorities, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're any more authoritative than anybody else who would do this research. And she, one, is a woman. Two, she challenges the idea that he was out there killing dirty, filthy prostitutes and challenges all kinds of things around the case because she looked at the case from a completely different perspective, as she would, and as any historian should. When you see how any personality, person, movement, culture, nation, government, whatever, has been written about previously, as a historian, and you want to write to publish, which if you're teaching... In any major university, you're expected to publish X amount of books or papers or whatever ever so many years. You don't want to go and research exactly what everybody else has researched, exactly the same way everybody else has researched it, and regurgitate the exact same thing. It's not that it doesn't happen. It does. Unfortunate truth is in academia, there is a whole lot of that regurgitated bullshit and some of these historians get called on it some historians don't but the historians who break ground and teach us new things or challenge us to look at 
the existing narrative in a different way are the most successful of historians. They're the ones that bring new information to light or ask us to look at the information that is existing in a different way. And that's why I said the based on extant evidence, right? When I said that earlier, it's what we know now is not necessarily what we'll know in 10 years. And this is the basis of this is so upsetting because it seems to be a human thing across all academia. We resist new ways of using mathematics to solve cosmological issues, problems with economics, all kinds of things. And, and I, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, going from new math to Chicago math to the rest of it with my kids and even myself. What the fuck do we need? We used to, you know, what's wrong with two plus two equals four? Why do we need all this new stuff? But it's the same thing that people have with science. Why people don't understand what a theory is. And they they don't understand that a theory is just that. It's not a law. This isn't Newtonian physics we're talking about here, which even then it's still up to interpretation to some extent. Mathematics, we have found, doesn't bear all of it out perfectly. And it's all relative and that's a, it, that's a pun that was intended, not intended, and it's wonderful anyway, because Einstein made a point of talking about this very thing, is that it's all really relative when it comes to physics. So the point I'm making is, is that history isn't any different than science. In other words, it needs constant reinvestigation. It needs to be challenged. It needs to be questioned. And when new information comes to light, that information needs to be interrogated against what's already been known. And everything that's already been known has to be reinterrogated based on the context as it becomes revealed. So there's this part of this argument, these guys who are like, well, that's not the way we investigated Jack the Ripper. And so therefore that can't be valid. Well, fuck you. It can too be valid. It's not like these facts and the, these documents and these sources that she found don't exist, didn't exist and are real. They're there. What you have to do now is integrate it into what you know. And a smart guy who's a ripperologist would take her book, read it, read her sources, integrate that information, and then figure out a way that his story, his narrative works with hers and or change his narrative to include the sources that this woman brought to light. That's what you do. So this is that's how it's supposed to work in academia, unless you're lazy and stupid and really excited about the fact that you're a quote-unquote expert in your field. Who apparently is such a fucking snowflake that you can't be challenged. But <clears throat> the other is what it really says is that a woman who goes to history and reads history from a woman's perspective and looks at a horrific set of crimes against women and interrogates that those events and investigates those events with a woman's set of eyes and a woman's intellect and understanding of a woman's experience in the world and then uses that as a way to tease and find and put together new information, new facts and new evidence that changes the narrative that that's the most dif difficult thing for these men to handle. Like 
because it was a woman. It's almost as if they're discounting Haley's entire thesis and her all of her work because she's a woman and because she's arguing that these women weren't necessarily prostitutes. Because somewhat, does it justify Jack the Ripper now? He's not some kind of weird folk hero because he wasn't, you know, dissecting prostitutes, but maybe decent women or, you know, working class women in the neighborhood. People that were just women who were just bartenders. Does it, because it disrupts the rape culture narrative that women who are of ill repute are the ones that suffer these indignities and that good hard-working women are not and that you, you want to keep that narrative in a lockbox so that women who get raped are shamed and men who do the raping are victims like i the whole thing is stinks to high heaven and i can't even for the life of me imagine why men of any kind in academia would find it necessary to behave this way Mind you, again, some of these men are just armchair historians who are armchair specialists or a ripperologist. I mean, how the fuck? Do you, it's not a thing they teach in college. You can't go to Cambridge or Oxford and major in ripperology, folks. That's just a fucking name they gave themselves because they're fascinated with this weird character who may be any number of people and who engaged in what we think is probably rape cannibalism and disembodying of females. I mean, Jesus fucking Christ. I don't see anybody else running around calling themselves a Bundyologist, but he isn't any different than Ted Bundy. And it's not any different, really, than any other of these kind of weirdos who do this shit, whether they're male or female, because there are female serial killers and females who've done shit like this. But what I'm talking about is like this boys club of ripperologists being really upset in their little snowflake mansions of ripperology where they're experts on history, apparently being able to tell a woman that she's absolutely wrong about any of the conclusions she came to, despite her having evidence and being a historian who's held herself to an academic rigor because it doesn't fit their masculine narrative of what happened and who was involved and and what cultural significance maybe this all has. It's just fucking ridiculous. Men want to know why we women get so fucking mad about things. This is another. Here's another one for you. That when you learn stuff and it's different than what we learn, you're always wrong. Because our narrative is the time-tested one. Ours is the old traditional narrative ours is the masculine narrative ours is the white privileged white male narrative whatever the fuck it is but historians have a fucking problem with this men in general well that well let me walk that back before i offend all my friends that are guys but there is a thing in this culture that when a woman challenges masculine narratives about history they're wrong In the same way that African-American historians of either sex, when they challenge white male patriarchal versions of U.S. history pertaining to slavery, slave ownership, and civil rights, when they are challenged, those other voices are also wrong. It doesn't doesn't matter. They're going to point to, well... I can only, only white males in the ivory tower of academia can actually be impartial. 
Well, I'm just going to say this as a historian, and for those of you who've never read Howard Zinn, I suggest you get yourself a copy of The People's History of the United States and read the fucker cover to cover. It will blow your mind, for one. But number two, Howard destroys, in like the introduction to that book, the entire presupposition that history is ever impartial. There are so many facts, and too many facts, far too many facts, in, in, about any given thing in history to write an impartial history because at some point you have to decide what are the most important facts and or what are the most important themes what are the most important lessons to be learned what are the most important anything and people involved whatever it is when you have to start ranking the value of the information in order to make a coherent narrative you've just destroyed any impartiality that you have because you are taking a subjective subjective view of what is most important and when you're a white male writing a fucking history you are going to pick those things that you are trained to pick which is the white male narrative particularly when there is no female narrative, there's no African-American narrative, there's no slave narratives, there's no Hispanic narratives, there's no any narratives outside of the white male academic narrative. That's period. You, you, there's, no, there's no room for argument. And Howard destroys this, this whole idea that most Americans have, that history is immutable and that it is exactly what it is and what it's always been and what they learned from wrote. This is why we still get people who complain about the whole idea of getting shit-canning Columbus Day. And I can give you reasons besides the genocidal way in which Christopher Columbus, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the Catholic Church went after the gold, quote-unquote gold, that supposedly existed in the New World. I, I can give you... All of the reasons that that's bullshit that he discovered America, for one, I mean, all of that, that where that makes it, that's enough reason to say, why are we celebrating this fucking Italian guy, this Genoan or from Venice, this guy who, you know, nobody in his own country wanted anything to do with him, so he had to go to Spain and make him a big deal. When I could just as easily say that the first people in Americas, in the Americas, who discovered the Americas were the people that came over the land bridge and the Bering Strait. And they were definitely not white Europeans. Because there wouldn't be fucking people here if they hadn't discovered it first. It's kind of like suggesting that we all floated around until Isaac Newton discovered fucking gravity. Like, what the fuck? Really, people? It's not written in stone and every time you pick up a book or somebody goes through a historic building or any other place where documents can slip into and disappear for a while or whatever we're going to constantly be faced with a situation where we have to reassess all of what we already knew and science is exactly the same this is why when people say well evolution's just a theory (laughs) history is immutable these things are not fucking as isolated and as absolutely certain as you'd like to think we're going to be constantly challenged that's being intellectually curious and if you can't live with being constantly intellectually challenged i want you to know you're an evolutionary dead end because what makes humans 
able to do what humans do and has made humans able to do what they have done previously is that they can adapt to changing circumstances, which means they also have to be able to adapt to changing information. And if you can't get with changing information and you can't get with changing circumstances, your chances of survival are pretty fucking low. We don't want to get with all kinds of things. We don't want to deal with, you know, reproductive science in a way that makes sense. We don't want to deal with climate change in a way that makes sense. We don't want to deal with even just natural resource use allocation and preservation in a way that makes sense because we are fucking convinced that just because it's been like this or our understanding of it has been like this for x amount of years then that's the only understanding that's available to us that we never have to step out of what the box that we've been in all this time to find a new box because we have new information like legitimately people who can't do that i don't even understand i do not even understand it This is the same people who will tell you that they're Christian and then whenever you ask them for a Bible quote, they will give you nothing but the Old Testament. And I grew up confused about religion a little bit from what, what, you know, Christians would tell me I'm confused because my mother was a a lapsed Catholic and my father was a Baptist who had given up being a a Baptist for being a fucking communist, really. And... I went to Baptist Sunday school and went to, when and I wasn't at Baptist Sunday school for a long time. I went to mass with my fucking grandmother. So like literally I have heard both ends of this argument. And and then when I did get baptized and confirmed really, I went Lutheran. So you know, I found the middle of the road in the insanity, but just the same. These are the same people that will tell you you know, they tell you that they're evangelicals and they're Christians and all they can ever do is quote you from the Old Testament. And I, you know, that's not Jesus. Just to be clear, Jesus is born in the middle of the book and everything. And he tells you, he tells, he says that everything that came before him is the past. It's new information now, kids. He breaks down that uh, all Ten Commandments to just one. That's what the new and everlasting covenant is about. And supposedly what being um, born again is supposed to mean for people who say that they're evangelical or say that they're Protestant or say that they're Baptist or any of the other John the Baptist derived versions of religion, of the Christian religion is that he, it, every, all the best are off after Jesus comes. And Jesus just says to love each other and judge not lest you be judged. And first person without, you know, sin, cast a first stone. And don't talk to me about the thorn in our, the, the splinter in my eye when you have yet to remove the plank from your own. That was what Jesus said. He didn't say, these are the, you know, he said there's but one commandment. Love God is... You know, and love yourself and others as you love God. That's like, that's like it. So like, you can't even Bible write. Like you literally have to be so cemented in some box that you don't have to actually critically examine or think about in order to get through the day. You can't, you can't Bible write. You can't science write. You can't history write. You can't literature write. You can't politics write. You can't human write. I, I, what the fuck? And I really want to know what it is about social media that men, fat 
maybe, dumb, maybe, arrogant for sure, nasty, insecure men can spend hours on the internet typing shitty fucking messages to a female academic because they don't like the conclusions that she drew about their pet project. Fuck you. And fuck you if you have, you're one of these people who thinks that you have a right to do that to anybody. At least if you're going to be giving criticisms of somebody else's work, fucking read it before you decide that it's a piece of shit. Try that. Maybe if you can't be bothered to read it, it's because you can't actually read. And in that case, all of the conclusions that you've already drawn and quote unquote published about the history and the research you've done are up in question. Because if you can't actually read and you don't know how to use any standards of academia to do the research or how to actually question your own thesis or anybody else's clearly for that matter, then you are in the wrong line of work. You're in the wrong business. And even if you're an armchair one, maybe you should give it up for, I don't know, gardening or footballing or something, whatever it is that you do in England that you think this is okay or wherever the fuck you're from. And I don't care where you're from, America, anywhere. It's stupid. It just really pisses me off. I just had to get that off my chest because Haley's work is very good. I would have to read it myself and I would have to actually put the work into being a good academic. I know how. I've been trained to do it. And go and research her sources and look at all the other evidence to determine whether or not I come to the same conclusion she does about the evidence that she finds and the evidence that's already extant before. But at least I know that I don't have an informed opinion about her work until I do that. And I'm a woman, so I don't have a penis, which doesn't make my opinion solid gold without doing the work. That's my, that's my bitch for today. That is my crack pottery for today. Is that just because you have a penis doesn't make your opinion solid gold. Well, the crow and the raven were sitting on the vines. Watching as the vultures circled in the darkened sky And the crow said, Mr. Raven, it's obvious to me That there's trouble for as far as I